Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. I am really excited about today's conversation. TIPQC is getting ready to launch a new project, and this is the first podcast that we will use to educate providers, parents, and other PQCs about what we are doing. We interviewed Dr. Colm Travers about UAB's Golden Week project in episode 36. That helped us generate a lot of ideas for this project. Specifically, we learned how they identified some important bundles of care for tiny babies. This project is what I have been referring to as our big, hairy, audacious goal, or BHAG. A BHAG is a business world concept made popular by Jim Collins. It is a powerful way to stimulate progress. A BHAG is a clear and compelling and needs little explanation. People get it right away. And when you do it right, it will help you achieve something thought to be unachievable. TIPQC's BHAG is the Tennessee's Tiniest Babies Project. You will hear more about the goals of this project as we sit down with some of the state leaders for this in an upcoming episode. But I think the name reveals our target. We are working on a project that will hopefully make a big difference for the tiniest babies in our state. Conversations on this podcast help us to learn from those who have done this before and done it well and to educate you about what TIPQC is doing to help you care for babies. So what is the first bundle of care in this project? we plan on reducing severe interventricular hemorrhage across our state and our tiniest citizens. If you do this, you can save babies from long-term problems and also death. That's pretty important stuff. For simplicity today, you're going to hear me refer to the problem as IVH. Today's guest developed and ran a successful quality improvement project to address this problem at the hospital where she works. Our plans today are to learn from her experience as we get ready to tackle this problem with Tennessee's tiniest babies. So I want to give a big Tennessee welcome and introduce all of y'all to Dr. Caitlin Kramer. She is an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Neonatology at the University of California in San Francisco. She practices at the UCS Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. And for context, this is a 58-bed level 4 NICU. It has about 40 ELBW infants admitted per year. She's the Director of Quality Improvement and Patient Safety for the UCSF Division of Neonatology, and she has a scholarly interest in improving neuroprotective care for preterm infants. Finally, she was a lead author on an article in Pediatrics in 2022 that described the impact of the IVH reduction project at her hospital, and we'll be linking the PubMed citation to this in our show notes in case you want to review it. Dr. Kramer, thank you so much for being with us today. Are you okay if I call you Katie? Of course, yes, please. 
tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm curious, how did you wind up in neonatology and then specifically doing work in quality improvement? Great. Yeah. And thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I So I wound up in neonatology after doing some soul searching, I would say, in medical school, Georgetown University. Um, I knew that I was critical care minded, but I also wanted a little more continuity and longer patient and family relationships than the typical ICU disciplines usually hold. I'm clearly biased as a neonatologist, but I do feel like the field stood out to me as the perfect balance of so many things. It really is the best profession to be in in the world, I feel. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I'm really privileged to be able to take care of newborn infants. When I was a neonatology fellow, I was introduced to quality improvement work from my um, incredible mentors. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rogers is one of them. She was the principal author on this paper, um, as well as Dr. Melissa Leibowitz. Um, They were very doing a lot of really impactful work in our unit um, using data-driven quality improvement initiatives. um, And we saw that they can really influence outcomes in real time. Uh, I think previously in medicine, I always felt a little bit frustrated by the fact that there's so much literature and research um, in, about best practices or potentially better practices, but often those interventions don't actually reach the patient in a real way because of quality or systems issues. Um, when I saw how my mentors, along with our dedicated nurses, respiratory therapists, nurse practitioners, and many other disciplines were able to affect change by true in, in true data-driven QI processes, it really inspired me to learn more about quality improvement and um, make that really one of my career goals to try to become a quality improvement leader locally in our unit and hopefully expanding that as well. Yeah, that's great to hear your story and especially how people can, can influence our, our mentors can influence our careers and influence what we do. And and uh, you will continue doing that because you you and your team has certainly influenced what TIPQC has done, especially as we've uh, been investigating this Tennessee's Tiniest Babies Project. So we've got a diverse audience that listens to this podcast. I'm sure this one is going to attract a lot of healthcare professionals just because of the topic and what we're interested in. But But we also have a lot of parents that listen to this. Can you sort of explain to everyone what intraventricular hemorrhage is or what IVH is? Yes, happy to. Um, So IVH means intraventricular hemorrhage, as you said. Um, It basically means bleeding in the ventricles or the fluid-filled areas which are inside the brain. Preterm infants, especially those born very early, like less than 28 weeks gestation or what we call ELBW or extremely low birth weight infants, um, are at very high risk of this type of bleeding because they have very weak blood vessels that sit along the edge of these ventricles inside the brain. Um, We know that any stress to these infants, especially in the first few days of life, um, including the delivery itself, um, can cause these blood vessels to bleed into the brain. And this is a pretty serious problem, as you can imagine. I mean, the um, the bleeding can be can be in severe instances catastrophic to a preterm infant's brain, and it's a pretty serious complication of prematurity. Unfortunately, unlike most issues related to prematurity, um, this you know, once the, there has been bleeding and there has been brain injury, this doesn't improve with time and growth, unlike, you know, lung disease, um, malnutrition, um, other things that we think of as complications of prematurity. Um, so in addition, in addition to causing and being associated with mortality, severe IVH can affect long-term neurodevelopment because of the brain injury that occurs. 
Um, and it can be associated with severe developmental problems as well, such as cerebral palsy. Um, I think that it's really important to note that while IVH is not the only factor that can affect neurodevelopmental outcomes for preterm infants, that there's other forms of brain injury as well. Um, but IVH is one of the most well-studied uh, forms of um, uh, brain injury in babies, in preterm babies. But it's all, also one of the only objective markers of brain injury that we can actually detect so early on in life. Um, we can do head ultrasounds for babies um, in the first few days and detect this type of brain injury. Everything else we wouldn't really be able to see until much later. Yeah, so you've made a pretty convincing argument already. So this is something that impacts preterm babies. It's something that can cause death. And if mm -hmm. it doesn't kill you, it can leave you with some long-term consequences that you may be stuck with your entire life. That sounds like a pretty good thing to develop a quality improvement project around. <laughs> you've got me sold. So I've got to hear about what you did at UCSF. Why did you decide to, to tackle this project at UCSF? What was what was going on there? Yeah, so our unit participates in, I guess it's kind of the California version of TIPQC. It's called the Care California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative or CPQCC. This is, includes many, you know, lots of a big range of centers all over California, um, and we are one of them. And we um, submit data to the collaborative, so we're easily able to view and um, to view all of our outcomes and see how we compare to other centers in California. So we do this regular review, you know, at least once a year, but usually multiple times a year, just to see um, how we're doing. And what we saw was that back in 2016, that our rate of severe IVH was actually much higher than other similar centers as ours. Our rate was at 14% over five years um, compared to an average around that time in both the CPQCC and the Vermont Oxford network around closer to 8% for, for extremely preterm babies. You know, additionally, we had actually had a pretty tough year for IVH and mortality in, 20, in the academic year of 2014 to 2015. Um, and the rate of both outcomes were actually over 20% for several quarters in a row. I think everyone in the unit was feeling the effects of this and frustration about it, of course. Um, so I think given that, that there was a lot of motivation unit-wide to look at our outcomes and improve our current care for extremely preterm infants. Prior to planning this QI initiative, there's actually very little QI work happening in general in our unit and definitely not a lot of consistency in our care in this patient population. So we didn't really have a good intentional, consistent practice of neuroprotective care for these infants. Um, we knew though that there was a lot of new research out about bedside strategies and things that other centers, many community hospitals, you know, have been doing to try to prevent IVH. Um, we were not doing those things or implementing those things consistently. Um, so when we looked at our kind of current state, we realized that uh, we needed to do a complete overhaul in our care of these of these babies and come up with some guidelines for our care because um, there was a lot of inconsistency and and we had some objective measures there with our high rate of IVH that that we needed to do a change. So what were some of the particular interventions that you came up with, some of those potentially better practices that you sought to, to uh, get your group to do? First things that came out of the evidence was the importance of um, kind of bedside practices and um, particularly in the first hour after delivery, um, 
ways that you know we can um, give in our resuscitation of an ELBW infant. When we were coming up with what we wanted to include in that first hour after delivery, as far as practice changes, we um, it was really important for us to include our OB colleagues in this discussion as well. Um, we needed them to be on board with what we were doing and have their input. So kind of one of the first things is delayed cord clamping, and um, that's been shown to reduce the rate of IVH, not necessarily severe IVH, but IVH in general. We wanted to, we needed our OB team kind of there to help us make that decision and be on board with the plan to try to do delayed cord clamping if we can. So starting from there, then, um, you know, bringing our babies to our, we have a resuscitation room right next to our OR after delivery, really early non-invasive ventilation. So, you know, I think that that was a, practice change for some providers. Again, there was no consistency before, but we wanted to promote early non-invasive ventilation as opposed to going straight to intubation for these babies. We looked at, you know, reasons why IVH happens and there's, you know, some association with intubating and intubation attempts. And um, there's been a lot of, you know, big studies showing that it's not necessarily better for these babies to to be intubated right away, that they can have similar outcomes with non-invasive ventilation. So we wanted to prioritize that with the goal of, for some of our, our group of subset of babies, avoiding intubation in those first few days of life. Um, so that was something we were working on, um, really um, temperature control, glucose control, um, keeping our electrolytes stable, avoiding um, overventilation, um, all of these things that um, I think a lot of us knew were um, important to reduce brain injury and IVH, but um, maybe weren't practiced consistently. And then trying to have everything tucked in, lines done um, within the first hour, so then we could bring the baby back to the unit and start our um, neuroprotective care for you know the next three days, weeks, several weeks um, in our unit. And that includes, you know, trying to be as non-intervention and interventional as we can, uh, keeping things quiet, dark, adhering to touch times, um, avoiding rapid blood draws and flushes and blood pressure cuffs and things that might change the cerebral perfusion or the blood flow to the brain that we know um, can increase the risk of IVH. So there's just some examples of um, some of the, at least, um, kind of practice, bedside practice changes that we made. There were other things that we looked at even before delivery, like um, rescue betamethasone, which um, we think has an impact on um, the rate of IVH for our babies. That also you know, required our inclusion of our OB colleagues to, to um, do that intervention consistently. So, uh, so we came up with these by you know, looking at them all together as a multidisciplinary team, coming up with the list seeing how that relates to our drivers of IV, and then rolling them out as we went through our intervention period. One of the other things I noticed is, as you were going through your PBPs uh, that I want to talk about is just this compounding effect with all these different things. I mean, you scoured mm -hmm. the literature, you looked at what everybody was doing, what the literature was saying, and, uh, and I think we all know there's not a silver bullet or magic bullet that's going to stop IVH, mm -hmm. but it can sometimes be this, this compounding effect. Maybe this one thing has shown a small reduction. This other thing has shown a small reduction. This other thing has showed maybe a medium reduction. But if you put all these together, you may see a really significant effect. Is that what your team was looking for as they, as they designed this? And is that what you saw? 
Yeah, exactly that. Because, you know, I think this is true in a lot of neonatal care and quality improvement is that there's things are very multifactorial. Every things affect different organ systems in different ways. Um, but if you take kind of all of these things together, then maybe we start to move the needle on our outcomes. And, um, you know, I think it's probably unlikely we'll ever have one silver bullet, like you said, to um, that we can prevent IVH in all of our preterm babies. But but we know that what increased risk and if we can risk mitigate, then that um, we think is probably what helped us. Again, this is quality improvement work. We're doing association of our improvement. We're not saying that we cause the improvement, but it's an association. Um, but I think that this is, you know, where neonatology is right now that we, you know, we can't do these randomized controlled trials on every single one of these practice changes. Um, but um, I do feel that quality improvement can affect outcomes. We've seen it with us um, by doing, you know, consistency in care and um, doing the things that we, you know, think will help. Um, and, and I think that there's been other centers have, that have been shown um, improvement in other big outcomes, such as BBT, uh, sorry, um, BPD, with um, bundles of care, you know, and, you know, multifactorial things that can can move the needle. So so that was was what we were going for. We decided to just hit every possible area that we could at once. If we were going to do this big overhaul, we felt like we should do it right and include everything that we could think of um, to be helpful. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why your work has been so important to us, because we've, we've sort of taken the, <laughs> the same mentality. Or we're just going to roll out a bunch of things at once. What has been going on in your neonatal intensive care unit with your sustainment in IVH prevention and then any other changes you've made to, to your uh, PBPs and what you're doing within your unit? So, so uh, first off, I guess, what was the target that you set for, for reduction of your intraventricular hemorrhage rates? This is what I found was so <laughs> impressive. Let our audience know what that target was and then what you actually did. Yeah, our um, our target was um, to decrease our rate of IVH from 14% to divide it by half. So to go down to 7% um, if um, we were able to do that. So that was our, our SMART goal. Post-intervention, like I said, it took a little while before we started seeing improvement. But um, during the intervention period and the sustainment period, which I think in the paper went to mid-2021, um, we were able to reduce our IVH rate to less than 2%. Um, wow. so we, um, had you know, several 2%, percent. let's make sure we yeah. heard that right. 2%, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And also what we found is that during that time, you know, again, we know that IVH is associated with mortality and we were able to also reduce our mortality from 20% to 10%, um, wow. over the course of five years. So it, um, we saw success. We were able to be successful with this quality improvement initiative. You know, as an update, I would say I'm very excited. We're very proud to say that we have continued that improvement in our rate of IVH. Um, we've still maintained a rate of about two percent in this patient population. We last looked at the looked at the end of 20 or Q3 of 2022, and we were still at a rate of about two percent. So um, we have sustainability, and I think that a lot of the reason for that is just again because of the culture in the unit. Um, really, now some of our main champions are. Are our nurses, you know, that um, have they are just been the leaders of this project and are they keep us, you know, on track with a lot of our interventions and remind us of the things that we need to do to be neuroprotective in our care. 
we've continued to have sustained improvement in our mortality rate as well. Um, I think we're a little over 10% at this time. So we're, um, you know, continuing on that that trajectory, which is great. And I think you asked a little bit about kind of the main changes to any of our other process measures. Um, yeah. So everything else aside from the methods and prophylaxis has maintained. I would say that our um, use of non-invasive ventilation has changed a little bit um, because we now do um, minimally invasive surfactant therapy. So we have a different threshold for starting that um, compared to intubation. We um, also have started using NAVA, neurally activated ventilation assistance as, our, um, as another mode of non-invasive ventilation. And then um, another one is our rate of delay cord clamping. So that was one of our interventions was to try to improve our rate of delay cord clamping. So you mentioned something earlier too that, that I was really excited to hear you say, and I want to delve into this a little bit. You mentioned how that after this has become part of your, your culture change, your nurses and your therapists are some of your biggest champions for this now and mm-hmm. are reminding the team, hey, you need to do this and do that. Give me some examples there. Like, what are some of the nursing um, therapies, the nursing treatments, the the reminders that they're giving the team to do when you're on rounds or when you're caring for these these babies? Oh yes, I there's so many of them. But um, so we do have our um, our um, ELBW babies are now in um, a small baby unit, which is um, more just a physical location in our intensive care nursery. We didn't change anything about the setup of the nursery. We just put our these patient population in a subset of our rooms that are kind of darker, quieter, and um, our nurses who take care of them maintain that dark and quiet environment. They tell us to keep things quiet. You know, they're happy to say, hey, you're, you guys are speaking up too much. We have ELBW infants here. Please keep things quiet. You know, we um, felt that touch times were really important. So we, again, non-intervention as much as we can. Um, so, you know, I can't tell you, and I, you know, will admit that I've many times wanted to examine a baby when I had time and it was not in their touch time. And I have 100% not been able to do that. And I am grateful for that <laughs> from our nurses. Of course, if the baby is unstable, we can't adhere to touch times, but in a stable ELBW infants, they are the gatekeeper. You know, they maintain this um, neuroprotective environment that we've set up for them. Um, and so we really appreciate them to enforce that in our unit. You know, other things like the that are very much um, bedside maneuvers that are nursing driven or, you know, medications, giving boluses, um, blood draws, all of these things um, are, were part of the project to minimize, you know, blood pressure changes and um, changes in cerebral perfusion. So, um, you know, our nurses really adhere to these guidelines. Um, they came up with them, you know, and they, um, they're the ones that um, that implement them at bedside. So everything is done, you know, slowly over a pump. You know, they remind us, hey, don't order cuff blood pressures. We have an arterial line. You know, they they keep up with the positioning of our baby. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention too that we think was critically important is kind of the involvement of our parents in our mm. care of our babies there. So, you know, we think it's really important that they get skin to skin early on that they get positive touch. Um, And it's our nurses and it's our OTPT group who um, educate families about this. And 
try to make them feel comfortable about these things and, um, you know, are, you make these interventions happen. And again, I think it's because we all have this shared model of the rationale for it all, um, which we started from the beginning is understanding the pathophysiology of IVH and the evidence for why these things can be helpful. So, so, you know, it's really our nurses and our other staff or like our PT and OT group who can, who help make these things real. You know, the physicians are not there at bedside. They're, you know, not spending time talking to the families about skin to skin and positioning of their babies that that's ideal. Um, and so, so they're the ones that make all of those things happen. One of the things you mentioned was a small baby unit, and I can certainly see how that can be a huge benefit for something like this. But there's only two hospitals out of Tennessee's 13 level three and four hospitals that have the resources to do a small baby unit. Mm-hmm. So why do you think it's important for like a one of the level three NICUs somewhere in our state to uh, to participate in Tennessee's Tiniest Babies Project. I mean, that's one of the things I like about PQCs because you, you can share resources and things like that. What, what words of encouragement would you give to somebody who's listening to this uh, from one of these, these NICUs and thinking this is a good idea and uh, wants some more convincing that they need to get on board? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I would say that, you know, I don't, you know, I think that so, I think that so much of what what worked for us um, was not related to us being in an academic tertiary care center with resources. You know, I think that we, you know, it was all about the planning and um, the culture change um, that I think was what made us successful. You know, we didn't actually establish our small baby unit until very late in the intervention period. It was not included in the initial planning of the project. And for the first few years of our interventions, we didn't have a small baby unit. And again, it was it ended up being created from an existing area of our intensive care nursery um, that that was chosen just because the rooms were away from windows and it was sort of a dark area that made sense that we can try to put more of our babies in that unit um, in this physical space. But, you know, while we think that this physical space likely has helped with the sustainability in our improvement with IVH, because, you know, I think that it is nice to be physically, you know, the ELBW babies are all in one place. And so we know when we're in that zone, this is how we care for them, you know, but I don't think that that's the reason for our initial success. We started seeing success even before the small baby unit was established. You know, I think that the the shared mental model of a culture for neuroprotective care can be done in any unit. Um, you know, and I will say that, in fact, our literature review, we actually found that it was many community hospitals were at, that were at the forefront of the QI work in um, prevention of IVH with delivery room management and bedside strategies. So a lot of this amazing work was done in the community. And so I think it is absolutely doable. And I think that, you know, those, those are the places where you can really get quality work that um, can start to, again, move the needle on these outcomes. You know, as an academic center, we were actually setting out to emulate some of the success from the community hospitals. I love that. That's inspirational. So you don't have to have a small baby unit to do this and yeah. do it well. And community hospitals, exactly the ones we want to get to participate in this, uh, are some of the, can, can be some of the leaders in this type of care. And that uh, leads us to almost my last question. I, I love my last one. We'll get to that one in just a second because it's always the fun one. But um, you did this at an institutional level, and you did this amazingly well. You and your whole team did this just 
unbelievable that you had this drop that you did in mortality and in your interventricular hemorrhage rates. What advice would you give to TIPQC to try to do this well on a state level with these 13 different neonatal intensive care mm-hmm. units? And then what else would you say to these, these different NICUs in Tennessee to, to give them some, some more uh, uh, suggestions or advice on how they can do this well within their culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, first I would just say, you know, the hardest thing is just deciding to do it. So I think that um, it's congratulations on even trying, you know, starting this process and and creating the project and starting this rollout. Um, you know, I think that every unit, you know, we one thing we found is that it was really important for um, us to do things that were unit specific for us, you know, so looking at your local system you know, things that may work in one unit may not always work exactly the same as another unit. So being willing to be flexible about some things and looking at what works for your team, your physical setup, your unit in particular, I think is really important. And so therefore to learn about what those issues are, forming the multidisciplinary team locally, um, I think is, is hugely important. I think I've already discussed that a lot, but Finding champions in each discipline think is really what um, can help you be successful. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really important is trying to be data driven. So um, collecting data, monitoring your outcome, you know, as close to real time as you can, but also monitoring your adherence to what you think you're doing well. You know, one thing we've learned is that you know we have a process measure and you know, we think that it's helping, but we're not actually doing it. So we can't say that it's helping. Um, so if there's any way being creative about tracking, you know, your adherence to some of these measures, I think is really important, uh, you know, and doing it again, or if there was a perfect world for how to do an IVH project, we could track every little thing, you know, were we doing golden hour, what were in our bedside strategies, but, you know, seeing if you can track those things, because that also keep, makes people accountable to what they're doing. And then the other thing is, you know, displaying your success, but also displaying if things aren't going well and, you know, keeping on top of that and, sh- you know, advertising it to the unit for all to see and that this is what we're doing. I think that helps with excitement. It helps with sustainability. Um, and I think that, again, it's something that any unit could do. Love it. All right. Final question. Somebody has given you big money to have a billboard somewhere in San Francisco, I don't know, going across the Golden Gate Bridge or something like that. And you can put anything on that billboard. What are you going to share? Yes, that is quite a question. Um, I, uh, you know, I think that probably my chosen message would be diversity is our superpower. Different backgrounds, life experience, disciplines, types of training, they, that will help us, you know, learn what the problems are and then the next steps to be successful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely love it. That's, I think, is quite an inspirational message to leave on today. So, Katie, you know, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We, I think we uh, learned a lot from you, uh, not only when we read your paper and went through everything, but uh, also in this conversation today. And I just thank you for sharing your wisdom with all of our listeners. Uh, to our listeners, please remember to take a look at the show notes if you want to access Dr. Kramer's article. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. 
Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.